Uh, welcome. Um, I am Splen Splendorio, and I'm filling in for our chair of the Audit and Compliance Committee for the Alameda Health System. Um, unfortunately, uh, there are only two trustees here. We need three for a quorum, which unless some miracle happens, we will not be able to take any action, but um, we will be able to take reports and hopefully there'll be some um, good education as a result of that. So let's get started. Rana, could you uh, have a roll call? Yes, Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Blue is absent. Trustee Fox is absent. Trustee Splendoria. Here. All right, we don't have a quorum. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, the next item on the agenda is public comment. This is an opportunity for members of the public to address this committee on, on items that are not on our agenda. If you would like to address the committee on items that are on the agenda, please wait and, until that item is called, and we will call on you. Um, uh, and if our, Rana, are there, are there any members of the public who would like to speak on uh, the public comment section. No one has notified me. All right, well, thank you. If someone does, please let me know. Next item, uh, which is the uh, approval of the minutes. That is an action item. We do not have a quorum, so we will pass that. Uh, hopefully we'll pick it up next time we meet and approve the men. Uh, item B, which is a discussion of the internal audit report and financial audit report. Uh, I don't know if um, any, any uh, if Kim or James would like to introduce Maude Adams or do we jump right in with Moss Adams? Or Kemi, <laughs> Kemi, would you like to do it? Sorry. That's all right. So let's, uh, Brian and John, um, please introduce yourselves um, since this is a new committee and then you can just um, start your presentation. Great, thank you, Akemi. Um, my name is Brian Connor. Uh, I'm a part, healthcare partner with Moss Adams and the partner on the audit engagement for uh, Alameda Health System, which we will discuss uh, our planning activities here shortly. I'm joined by a colleague of mine, uh, John Finice. John, you wanna introduce yourself? Thanks, Brian. Hi, my name is John Finice. I'm a, a senior manager. Um, I, Focus only on the on healthcare uh, audit engagements, um, hospitals, medical groups, foundations that support hospitals and the like. So, uh, looking forward to sharing our audit plan with you here this evening. Great, thanks, John. Uh, we'll go ahead and uh, get started with the aforementioned presentation, uh, if that works for everybody. John's pulling it up on the screen. Hopefully, you can see this, and we'll work through. Uh, some slides that we have here uh, that get to uh, the items that we want to cover. Uh, and of course, if there are any questions uh, during the process, please don't hesitate to interject and ask those who want to make sure, particularly for this meeting, uh, planning uh, an audit engagement with the Audit and Compliance Committee uh, that we have uh, open dialogue uh, where appropriate. So next slide, John, let's go to the uh, uh, agenda here and one more. So what we're gonna talk about here this evening is the team uh, for Moss Adams that's going to participate 
uh, in the audit engagement. Uh, we'll provide uh, the audit committee with some communications, required communications with those charged with governance, uh, kind of work through our audit plan, um, areas of risk that we identify, uh, some project management things like timing, et cetera. And then we do have um, some uh, upcoming accounting standards that will impact the health system's financial statements over the next couple of years. We'd just like to give the audit committee a, a heads up uh, on, on what to expect uh, in executive summary changes that are um, in line for the next couple of years. So your uh, dedicated team here, we've uh, uh, got what we always consider is, is a good thing, um, uh, some significant continuity in our team uh, from last year, as I mentioned. I'll be the partner on the engagement. I believe this is my fourth year uh, as the partner uh, on Alameda's engagement. Um, and we had another partner uh, that was uh, uh, the lead engagement partner uh, for, I believe, a year or two um, on this audit engagement. John is joining me uh, as the senior manager in the current year. John's participated uh, in the Alameda Health System engagement um, in the past in our single audit capacity. John, is this your second year in the, uh, the full um, audit of the health system? Yes, that's correct, Brian. Excellent, so John's returns uh, to help manage the field work team uh, and really do a lot of the heavy lifting. Kate Jackson is a healthcare partner uh, here in Northern California. She's the concurring reviewer uh, for the engagement. So she helps with quality controls involved with all aspects of the engagement, but isn't directly involved uh, with uh, your management team, with relationship, uh, et cetera, but really serves as, a, as a, an objective uh, set of eyes uh, on the work that we're doing, both from um, an audit engagement procedure perspective as well uh, as a financial statement presentation perspective. And then we, we incorporate a number of subject matter experts where appropriate, certainly uh, your third-party reimbursement um, area is a very significant area uh, for the health system. So we involve uh, a director in that practice. Uh, for us, Glenn Bunting uh, helps us with auditing that. Uh, and Glenn, both Kate and Glenn have been involved in the past. And Lisa Schick, who has been our senior accountant uh, for the last several years, um, was recently promoted to manager, and she'll still be involved in the engagement from a management perspective. So lots of good continuity uh, with the team, um, and uh, that usually leads to uh, enhanced audit quality. So we're, we're excited about the team that we put together here. So for communications with uh, those charged with governance, we're required to, to communicate a number of things uh, with those charged with governance, which we um, have concluded is the audit committee. Um, it's, we're required to, but it's really important to communicate the things that we're required to communicate. Typically, this happens in, in two separate sessions. The session that we have here this evening, uh, we'll go through um, our responsibilities as auditors and kind of the plan scope and, and timing of the audit and areas of risk, uh, et cetera, uh, that I had discussed earlier. Uh, and then in our exit meeting, we discussed significant audit findings, um, qualitative aspects of the accounting practices, any difficulties, any adjustments we encountered, kind of the results of the engagement, 
uh, and how those impact the financial statements uh, that you see at the end. Those are the two planned uh, sessions that we have together, but uh, our customary uh, agreement uh, and pledge to the audit committee is if something arises during our engagement that you need to know about immediately, we will make sure that we have that communication. Uh, again, I think uh, a quality, uh, the quality of the audit is directly related to um, the nature of the communication that those charged with governance the audit committee has with the auditors. So uh, we're, we're really expecting open dialogue to the extent that that's necessary. But that's uh, our plan here uh, as we uh, look at the, uh, the planning meeting that we're in uh, for 63021 uh, in the year ending audit engagement. So, from a rep- responsibility standpoint, um, the important items on this slide, I think, to cover are um, one that our responsibility uh, as independent auditors is to an express an op- is to express an opinion on the consolidated financial statements of the health system. Um, those financial statements are prepared by and are the responsibility of the health systems management team. Uh, so we're responsible for providing an opinion on the financial statements. The statements themselves, balances, line items, all the notes there too, that's the responsibility of your management team. Uh, and again, we're uh, engaged to provide an opinion on whether those financial statements uh, that are the responsibility of the management team uh, are prepared in accordance with generally accepted uh, accounting principles uh, and are fairly stated in all material respects. So it's important distinction between what's our responsibility and what's your management team's responsibility. So we'll conduct our engagement under a couple of sets of standards. Um, the AICPA uh, codifies uh, auditing standards that, that uh, we use in, in the audit of the financial statements, but because you have uh, uh, a certain amount of federal expenditures that exceed a threshold, uh, you're required to have uh, a single audit uh, and also conduct your financial statement audit in conjunction with government auditing standards, uh, which are promulgated by the Comptroller General of the United States. So there's some additional work there. And John, we have another slide that, that talks about that compliance work uh, related to your federal grant programs. But those are the standards under which um, we conduct our engagement. And then finally, um, I think it's important to mention our responsibility related to internal control. Uh, so we're, we're required to understand the internal control of the organization as it relates to financial reporting. Spend a lot of time uh, trying to understand your internal control of both the design and the implementation of those controls uh, as required. We may choose to test uh, your internal controls um, in some capacity to gain reliance in certain areas. We typically do that in the revenue cycle. Uh, we do some control testing uh, related to claims, transactions, et cetera. We could do that in payroll uh, as well as disbursements uh, to gain some reliance for our processes. But we're not ultimately doing control work for the purpose of issuing an opinion on the operating and effectiveness of that internal control structure. So we're not looking at your controls in that sort of depth to be able to opine uh, on the controls themselves. Uh, so that's important to understand, but we're, we dig in pretty uh, closely in the internal controls. And if, if we do find items uh, that are deficiencies in your control structure that rise to a certain level, we're required to communicate that 
uh, to the audit committee in writing uh, until those are remediated by management. So we'll definitely have a discussion about internal control. Uh, we'll look at it closely, uh, but the engagement is not designed to opine on the operating effectiveness of those internal controls. Brian, this is Taft Bouquet. I'm one of the trustees. Thank you for the leading in the presentation. It's that last statement, not, not expressing an opinion, I just have a question on. I would think that Moss Adams is uniquely positioned to understand across a variety of settings what, what are good control systems and what are not. So th this one sort of gave me a little bit of pause because, man, your opinion would be valuable. Uh, so, but, but we're, we're not engaged to hear it. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it's fairly common practice uh, within the industry. There are standards under which auditors do opine on internal controls, either separately or in conjunction with a financial statement audit. The most common and recognizable of those are the standards under which SEC registrants get audited under Sarbanes-Oxley, where uh, you know if you go to your favorite SEC registrant, their um, audit opinion will um, cover the fairness of the financial statements as well as um, the operating effectiveness of the internal control. Those standards don't apply to the health system. You could choose to implement those standards. Every organization that I'm familiar with that doesn't have to do that doesn't do it generally because it's cost prohibitive. It's just extremely expensive uh, to have your auditor, uh, auditors applying on the operating effectiveness of the internal control. Uh, so you don't see it uh, very often, and it's not required under the standards. What you do see um, more commonly is if uh, those charged with governance have concerns about a, about a particular area uh, of internal control. Um, you know, we can discuss doing some additional work in that area, and, and we have a section of this presentation, you know, that talks about um, where we see risk areas, et cetera. Um, but we do do a robust look at your internal control uh, under regular audit standards to understand the design and implementation. Uh, so there is quite a bit of control work that's done, uh, and we do share that uh, information, those findings that we find uh, with those charged with governance. But that's really why you don't see those standards used unless a regulatory organization is requiring those. I, well, thank you for that response. I guess my, my response is that's too bad uh, because this is how organizations get better by hearing experts who understand the field. With that, but I get I, I get the game. So uh, thank yeah. you. Sure. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, you know, um, as we go forward, delighted to um, engage in discussions about you know if there's areas that we need to dig a little bit deeper. Uh, but I said, as I said. Uh, I expect that we'll have a robust internal control discussion uh, with the audit committee. Um, and if we need to take that further, uh, we'll have the ability to do that. Thank you, sir. Uh, so next slide, John. So the audit process um, is, uh, this looks linear here. It's not entirely linear, but there's kind of three buckets of, of testing that we're doing. As I mentioned, internal controls, uh, we're looking at those to gain an understanding of the organization. We will test those in certain circumstances. Uh, we also do analytic procedures, uh, which uh, is we gain reliance uh, on the information. Typically, those are 
um, an examination of information, financial and non-financial, comparing ratios, et cetera. So we'll look at um, revenue in a particular area compared to number of procedures. Uh, and if we see anything unusual, uh, you know, that's a, that's a common part of our audit process uh, is to look at analytics like that. And of course, there's the classic substantive procedures. We're vouching documents, uh, information, confirmations from third parties, et cetera. You put this all together, and that's kind of the bucket of uh, procedures uh, and collection of evidence we're using to ultimately opine on the fairness of the financial statements. As I said, um, this looks like it happens uh, in sequence, uh, but uh, it, it doesn't have to. You know, a lot of times we'll go back and look at something analytically, or we'll go back and test something that where we see uh, a difference uh, in the analysis that's worth probing. We'll go do substantive procedures on that. We might follow up with a look at internal controls. So it is an iterative process. And I mentioned the term materiality. Uh, we do this important term in a financial statement audit. We do conduct our engagement under the concept of materiality. Um, and, you know, that the general definition is the amount of a misstatement that could influence the economic decisions of users taken on the basis of the consolidated financial statements as a whole. Um, so we're looking uh, for uh, things that uh, allow us to opine on the fairness of the financial statements in, uh, in consideration of materiality. So there's likely to be some items that might be of interest uh, to those charged with governance that just wouldn't be in scope for a financial statement audit. It, would just, uh, it wouldn't rise to the level of materiality. Um, we use certain qualitative and quantitative factors to determine what our materiality is, you know, what might influence um, uh, the economic decision of a user, the financial statements. Those kind of quantitative benchmarks, a certain percentage over 3% of revenue, for example, uh, or a certain percentage of the results of operations, certain percentage of total assets we'll use. But we also look at it qualitatively. Um, who's looking at the financial statements? Uh, what's the... Uh, position, the nature of the organization, et cetera, to determine uh, what that materiality is. And then we use that in our process. Our testing levels uh, are typically well below our ultimate materiality threshold with which we evaluate potential misstatements to the financial statements. So this is really the most important part uh, of this presentation is where we, we tell you uh, you know, where we think uh, the significant areas of risk are from an audit perspective. Uh, and we also like to solicit your feedback on uh, areas that you see uh, as an audit committee, uh, potentially of focus. And for that, I'll turn it over to John. Thanks, Brian. Well, again, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, present uh, our audit plan for, for this year. Um, I've got a couple of slides here that list out our significant audit areas. Um, I'm going to discuss each one of them, you know, briefly. And if you'd like me to elaborate on, you know, why we think it's a significant audit area or, you know, what is our planned approach for that area, I'm happy to do that with you here today. Um, starting off with internal controls over financial reporting. Um, as you've already alluded to, internal controls are an extremely important part of the organization. And while we're not opining on the controls, as Brian said, we spend quite a bit of time uh, updating our understanding of the design of the internal controls and the implementation of those controls. 
And, and we do plan to test internal controls um, over the revenue cycle, uh, particularly the, uh, the, the net patient service revenue cycle. And what this means for, for our procedures is uh, we sit down with management. We've got a, um, a schedule of control objectives that we think are important to uh, achieving. And then we work with management to understand how they're achieving those control objectives and we start off with interviews where we walk through the process of how management accomplishes um, its tasks, its procedures, and the controls that are uh, laid on top of those procedures to prevent a transaction from entering into the financial statements um, inappropriately, either through uh, fraudulent activity or accidentally, um, and whether or not those procedures are, uh, are those controls actually capture or monitor or prevent those transactions from entering the financial statements. Um, in the timeline that I'll share a little bit later, we'll talk about when we're going to actually update our understanding of the internal controls over financial reporting. The, the next one we have here, valuation of net patient accounts receivable. As you can imagine, the uh, net patient service revenue and the related accounts receivable are by far the largest uh, amounts in the, the financial statements and certainly the most uh, um, influential estimate that management makes in its financial statements. Um, you have, management has a, a master fee schedule in which they, they record transactions. Uh, during our control procedures, we look to see if those transactions are being recorded, but then we want to make sure that those, those ultimately, the amount that's realizable from those transactions is properly stated at the end of the year. And so we'll take a look at accounts receivable from last year, and then we'll look at all the cash collections um, in summary uh, using uh, management reports that we've tested through the, the, the revenue control process to evaluate how management has done in collecting its receivables from the prior year. And if there's been a, a good collection cycle that gives us some evidence that management does have a good process at estimating its accounts receivable, at least from a, a look back or a liquidation from prior year. And then we're able to apply some uh, ratios and some calculations using historical cash collections to evaluate the current year's accounts receivable valuation and compare the two. And if we've got you know, questions, as Brian said, we'll then dig deeper and, and bifurcate the analysis into things like inpatient and outpatient uh, by different payer classes and things like that. Uh, another evaluation of accounts receivable relates to those uh, third-party payers. Um, as Brian alluded to, we've got specialists to help us to, uh, to dig into and understand the, the, the different uh, valuation methods as it relates to supplemental cash receipts. Um, the supplemental revenue programs, and we look to understand the, the valuation of these accounts receivable. Um, we understand that some of these uh, accounts take years to finally pay out because they go through a review process um, at the, the county, the state, and the federal level, and those programs take quite a bit of time to, to pay out. And so we look to management to understand what their methodologies are for estimating those receivables, on those third-party payers and determine if they're reasonable and if they're um, you know, too exorbitant or, or overstated. The, third, the fourth one on this page, medical malpractice and other self-insured liabilities. Um, the organization is uh, self-insured for several liabilities. It uh, retains the, the, 
the resources and the services of actuaries. And so we work with management to understand the inputs and the reports they provide to those actuaries to make sure that they're consistent um, from year to year to make sure that they're complete. And then we look, um, we obtain copies of those uh, final actuary reports and make sure that management has uh, properly re referenced all of those amounts in the footnotes, as well as uh, has consistently applied the, uh, the liabilities that the actuaries are recommending um, be reported for the health system. And the last one on this page is I've already kind of alluded to the recognition of net patient service revenue. Um, the organization is required to recognize, recognize net patient service revenue on a uh, net realizable value. And so in accordance with uh, accounts receivable, we look to see management's valuation techniques um, to make sure that not only is it valuing correctly, but is also uh, properly captured cutoff. And so that the charges provided, excuse me, the charges for services provided in the current year are reflected in this year's financial statements, meaning that charges from future periods aren't backdated into this period. And so we look to make sure that management's done a good job of, of cutting off those net patient service revenues. Are there any questions about significant audit areas on this page? Our second page of significant audit areas um, starts off with uh, you know uh, the supplemental revenue programs uh, in relationship to the accounts receivable from third-party payers. Um, we look to make sure that management has um, been tracking the, the supplemental payments um, programs that allow it to participate in these programs, the uh, wellness and uh, other areas of the programs that are related to benchmarks about performance and things like that. And so we look to see that management's been properly tracking that. We look at the performance benchmarks that they've received on past periods and see if they correlate to the amounts that uh, are available to be recognized in the current period and whether or not they've uh, met those benchmarks and applied, a, applied an appropriate amount of valuation to uh, not overstate the supplemental revenues. Valuation of pension and other post-retirement benefit liabilities is a, another significant risk area. Management does engage the, uh, the resources of an actuary here as well as for the, the self-insured liabilities. And again, we'll be looking at the inputs as well as the, uh, the actuary reports to make sure that uh, the inputs are consistent and complete and the outputs are consistently being applied from period to period. Compliance with grants and contracts subject to the uniform guidance. Uh, Brian alluded to it earlier. Um, you are subject based on your expenditures of federal awards to the uniform guidance because the uh, health system has crossed over uh, certain spending and expenditure thresholds. And so the, the compliance with those grants and programs, uh, we focus on the major programs that are selected during the year. Management's required to track the total expenditures based on a program by program basis. Um, as we've done in the past, we'll be working with the, uh, the program managers um, within the organization and both at the, the senior management level as well as the, the program management level to get an understanding of what are the controls in place? Have they changed in the current year? Have they been consistently applied? Have there been any new programs that have been entered into in the current year? And as you're all probably aware, there have been quite a few new programs, uh, particularly surrounding the, the CARES Act 
provider relief fund is one, coronavirus relief, FEMA um, is another uh, source for federal funds. And so we'll be looking at management's tracking of those expenditures of those funds and making sure that they have done a good job of complying with the the uniform guidance in uh, utilizing those funds. Consolidation of the component units, specifically the Alameda Health Foundation and the East Bay Medical Group into the consolidated financial statements. There are quite a few uh, areas where there could be an opportunity to omit a uh, an eliminating item that should be properly eliminated. And so we'll work with management to understand the controls that they use to make sure that they've properly eliminated all of the um, inter-company accounts between the entities. And then lastly, lastly is the required supplementary information. Um, we, we do provide an opinion on the required supplementary information as is laid out in the engagement letter. And uh, we make sure that all of those items are uh, related back to the financial statements um, in accordance with that engagement letter. So now since I've gone over several of these significant audit areas, um, this is the, uh, the point in time where I'd like to get feedback from the committee members or other members of the organization uh, that are in attendance to see if there are other significant audit areas that you think we should be focusing on uh, during our audit. Sorry about that. Thank you, Tap. Um, Thank you very much, John. Thank you very much, Brian, and your team from Ross Adams. Uh, Let's open it up here. I can start off with Tap. You've asked one good question. You got any others? You think any areas we need to look into? I have like one good question per day, so I've already uh, blown it. (laughs) All right, you take a rest there, okay? Um, okay. Uh, I me, think Akimi is probably uh, positioned best. Yeah, I was going to call, call. Let me call on Akimi. Right. <laughs> in, in, anything you'd like to have Moss Adams look into? Uh, no, they have a lot on the plate, and we discussed it. Um, we also uh, made sure that um, <clears throat> the VP of Finance, who and Ms. Messner, I think she's with the controller. So she approved this as well. So um, there isn't anything else that um, you and I discussed. Great. All right, let me turn to the C-suite. You know, turn to James. And James, uh, anybody on your team, you or anybody on your team, have anything they'd like to discuss? Thank you for the opportunity. No, I was briefed on these um, elements, and I think that this would provide a comprehensive view at this time. So I'm, I'm comfortable with the areas that are outlined. Okay, thank you very much. Kim, anything? Nope. I, the new items this year uh, are the, the CARES fund um, and the FEMA application. And you know, we're, we're working on that right now. So those are new. And I think they're very uh, pertinent and are included. So um, I'm comfortable with this. Okay. Uh, Anyone else uh, have anything they'd like to add at this point in time? Okay. Well, um, let's turn it back over uh, to Moss Adams. Thanks. Appreciate the opportunity to uh, to collect some input. Okay. Thank you. Is that the, the 
you want to move on? You have other other things to We've talk got about? We've a, a few more slides, yes. Uh, right, I got it. You know, and you're, you've played right into our hand. You know, the, the name of this committee is Audit Compliance. You know, when you when you mention that, you immediately have people turn the channel to something else. So, um, well, we're uh, we, we we don't want you to turn the channel quite yet. So, if you'll you'll bear with us for just a few more minutes, uh, we'll uh, we'll get through these these last few slides. Um, this next slide, the consideration of fraud, um, is an important topic. It's been an audit procedure for uh, quite some time now. Um, you know, uh, we are as auditors required to consider the the, the likelihood that um, that fraud exists and have to design procedures to uh, to detect any material misstatements and fraud. And so we do that by. Um, you know, examining journal entries and for non-standard transactions, you know, uh, if, if the organization were only open Monday through Friday, we'd look for journal entries being posted on the weekends and things like that. So we look for those opportunities where um, there just wouldn't be the likelihood of a transaction being recognized. Uh, we evaluate the, the policies um, for the organization for consistency being applied and, uh, and against those for revenue recognition. Um, we do spend quite a bit of time testing uh, management's estimates for bias. Um, I talked about a couple of large ones earlier um, this evening as they relate to accounts receivable and the valuation of accounts receivable. Um, you know, uh, we look for things that, uh, you know, we're management to be saying, well, it, it's this is the way we've always done it instead of, uh, you know, we're taking into consideration uh, information that's happening in the current period and we've uh, properly included that information into our analysis. Um, we also do internal things like uh, brainstorming with our team. There's been a, a lot of activity with, with uh, the pandemic and we look to our other uh, providers. Uh, this is a, an area where we bring in uh, Glenn prior to the beginning of the audit. And we also bring Kate into the, uh, to the team prior to the conduction of the audit to uh, you know, pick her brain and see um, what she's been seeing uh, as she's been the engagement leader on other hospital um, audit engagements. We conduct interviews with um, not only those that help prepare the financial statements, so Ann Metzger and Kimberly, but we also, uh, you know, interview, um, you know, the CEO will be having discussions with Mr. Jackson, as well as um, the, uh, the chair of this committee um, during the engagement to evaluate if there's any additional concerns that we haven't considered. Um, we'll be having discussions with, you know, members of the compliance and because you are conducting a single audit or we are conducting a single audit, we'll be having some fraud discussions with those that are involved in the management of those programs that will be determined to be uh, major programs. So this next slide or two, uh, it is really just a report out on the del deliverables that we plan to provide um, when we end the engagement. This first one, the, as I've coined the short form, is really just the, the, the consolidated audit for the health system. Um, it will include, you know, management's discussion and analysis and uh, the, the basic financial statements as well as the footnotes. The next three bullets are all contained in um, what's deemed to be the long form. It'll have all of those things that we just talked about in the standard audit management discussion and analysis, the, the basic financial statements, but it'll also have those last two bullets there. Um, the report on internal controls where we talk about 
um, what we've done in internal controls, that we're, that we're not opining on those inter internal controls, as well as a report on uh, compliance with the uniform guidance and uh, supplementary um, schedules in accordance with the uh, State of California Emergency Management Agency, which requires that supplementary schedule to be included in the, um, the, the audited financial statements. Other deliverables, uh, we consistently uh, provide, as, as Brian alluded to earlier, that uh, discussion, communication with those charged with governments. We will provide a written letter as well as you know, produce a presentation that will uh, highlight all of those communications. And um, if there are matters identified related to internal control, they will be included in the uh, schedule of findings and questions costs um, that's attached to the, the long form audit on the previous page. The last bullet here, um, in interim review procedures, um, we have been working with management to uh, focus on a, an interim review of the seven month period ended January 31st, 2021 as a, uh, a line in the sand, a cutover procedure for uh, the uh, starting of uh, the changing of the guard, if you will, um, as it relates to Mr. Jackson um, becoming the new CEO. So we're working with management to uh, provide some uh, review procedures of the consolidated financial statements of the health system so that he has an idea of where everything was at with an external um, assurance. Um, any questions about that one? That one is new compared to uh, previous presentations. Uh, I could ask a question, John. In, in other organizations, do you, when you've had a change in, uh, in essence, management, is that common to do a, you know, a, a, to draw a line in the sand and see what happened before and presumably after? You know, I, I would, I would, I'll have Brian chime in in a second, but I, it, it, it isn't common, but I think, uh, um, you know, we're happy to do it. Um, in, in this particular case, the, the, with the, uh, the county having its request to change the CEO, um, we believe that there's, uh, you know, a, an external, you know, source requesting that change. And so with that change, um, senior management felt it would be important to uh, gain a, you know, gain an independent view on the financial statements um, on around the time of that transition. And, and uh, we're happy to provide that assurance for management. Thank you. At the very bottom of the slide, I made note of three bullets, um, things that we're doing that are considered to be non-attest services. Um, we wanna bring your attention to that because these services don't impair our independence. Um, they were not required to provide these services. Management has asked us to provide some support with these services, um, but again, they don't impair our independence. And it's important that you're aware that we are providing these services to management and that they don't impair our independence. Um, and those, those services are, you know, we will be assisting management with the, the drafting of the, the consolidated financial statements um, with the exception of the management's discussion and analysis. Uh, management actually does take a, a really leading role in the preparation of their financial statements. As Brian alluded to earlier, um, you know, the financial statements are the responsibility of management and they do take responsibility for financial statements. We provide them uh, performer financial statements basically rolled forward from the prior year. And they start the drafting process out for us. They provide us the trial balances. Um, we just help them to make sure that footnotes 
have been updated in accordance with the new uh, accounting standards. If we see best practices um, as we're working with other clients, we'll make suggestions to management on how they can improve their financial statements. And that's really what we mean here by assisting in the drafting of the consolidated finance statements. We are not drafting management's financial statements. Um, they take full responsibility and do draft their financial statements. We do assist, however, in the preparation of the auditee section of the data collection form. Uh, this is tied directly to the single audit. Um, all those single audit work papers and the reports as it relates to the schedule of expenditures of federal awards are translated into a data collection form that's uh, reported through the federal audit clearinghouse. And so we support management in helping prepare um, that upload of that data, as well as uh, we help the health system with their state and federal tax returns. The timeline, uh, kind of winding down at the end of it. So we've had several discussions uh, leading up to this discussion here with the audit committee. Um, we do plan on beginning interim audit procedures to update our understanding of the design of control and to test the implementation of those controls um, related to revenue, as well as you know, gain an understanding of disbursement controls, financial reporting controls, et cetera, uh, beginning the week of June 21st. Um, the week of August 16th, we will be working with management to focus uh, solely on the supplemental revenue um, stream and uh, begin to plan the single audit procedures. We'll be uh, focusing heavily on the single audit procedures the week of August 23rd, and then returning the three weeks of the three weeks starting September 13th with final fieldwork procedures for the consolidated financial statements. The, the goal is to be in final draft uh, at the end of November so that we're able to uh, work with management and help provide a final draft for this committee to finalize the audit reports in early November, which has been the, uh, the timeline with the last couple of years. Any questions about timeline? Yeah, I do actually, John. Um, is I look at this at the timeline, the schedule. Is there, and I don't know. You know, maybe this is a question for Kemi. But uh, is there a presentation to the full board at some point, or because I, I, obviously I see that the audit committee approves the statements and exit me. But is that is that something that's not done? Is it usually done? Yeah, that's a good question. I think in the past, we have, uh, the auditors have reported to the audit committee, uh, and then the audit committee has summarized uh, that report to the four full board of directors uh, or board of trustees. We're uh, happy to present uh, to the, uh, the full board of trustees uh, if that's something that uh, you think would be appropriate. Uh, especially this year, haven't done it in the past, but it's uh, that is something that's that's uh, not terribly uncommon is to have a, a detailed report to the audit committee and uh, a summarized report to the uh, full board. So we'd be happy to do that if that was something that at, that the board thought would be um, appreciated or a good idea. Yeah, I, I actually would like it. Consider you you know, raised a couple of points. One is the cutoff when. Well, we hired James and the other just, you know, the effect of COVID, frankly, would be if you are and any other things you might want to point out to us that might not be, um, we might not emphasize as well as an audit committee. Sure. Sounds good. Well, we'll, uh, 
we'll work with the uh, team to, to, to get that scheduled. And, and we've got some runway here to uh, find the best time and, and to make that work. Great. Thank you. Splend, I would agree with you. My, my recollection previously is I, I've never sat on the audit uh, compliance committee before, but it would migrate to the board in a quick summary with attached documents through which many of the trustees did couldn't that didn't know what was behind it. So it was like the audit went well. So I, I, I think having a, a depth of understanding, I agree with you, is something that um, it, it should happen. Maybe yeah. someone to put it on an agenda. Okay. For the and, I'll challenge, and I'll challenge you to do it in under 15 minutes. <laughs> challenge accepted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Brian and John, I have some questions for you. Um, obviously, an annual audit is a is a is uh, sounds like a best practice. It, what is the regulatory requirement for annual audits or compliance? Uh, is there a compliance or regulatory at Fed or California level? And this is just to inform my own ignorance. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, hospitals generally uh, and health systems are uh, uh, operating uh, under um, uh, bond indentures, et cetera, where there's, there's uh, lenders that require an annual financial statement, typically Medicare, uh, participation in the Medicare program, uh, and the filing of a cost report requires an audited financial statement uh, yeah. to be included. Uh, so there are a couple of regulatory uh, reasons why health systems get audited financial statements outside of, as you mentioned, uh, the fact that it's, it's probably a good idea. Yeah. Is that, is that the case with us? And again, this question is coming from total ignorance. Are, uh, Kim, are, and Kimmy, we're required to do this because of our Medicare relationships or, and again, I'm, 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 I'm trying to fill my ignorance. Mm -hmm. No, I think it's a, it's a fine question. So you are actually required to do this. The, the state controllers minimum requirements for California special districts require this audit to uh, to be conducted every year. So you do have a, a, a regulatory requirement coming down from the state controller's office. Thank you, John. That's very helpful because I, I like to make sure in part of my job that we're following the rules. And if there wasn't a rule, then best practices is definitely anything, but I, that, that's very helpful. I guess my next question would probably go to probably largely Kim because uh, uh, Kim's been here uh, with us longer uh, than, than James and maybe a Kimmy who sat on this. How do we interface this data with our board of supervisors and I, I, or how have we historically, because as, as a prior board member, I didn't really know much about the audit report except that it went well. And uh, I'm wondering about this as opportunity to, to uh, show our county partners about this. Kim, can you comment on that? Have we, what, did, did we historically have a, a session where we, discussed our audit report with our supervisor partners? Not that I'm aware of. Um, there is a deadline that we need to provide the audited financial statements to them. I don't know if Akimi can help me on that, but I know that um, when, as soon as typically last year when we published, we had to get a copy over to them and it's probably for one of the grants. Yeah. But I know that we provide it to them. Well, thank you. I just think this is another, as as everyone feels the theme beyond this committee about relationship building with our supervisor partners, this is a robust opportunity. We have a high-powered firm who knows what they're doing and to have their report sort of like stuck in a folder and not really uh, getting, the, getting the run value out of it. I think we have a great opportunity with 
uh, to really show uh, the, the Moss Adams report when it comes out. So, so, so I have a suggestion uh, to really um, take more of our time, but uh, if to get on the supervisor's agenda for a 10 minute agenda item on the full board, yeah. which I think is Thursdays. And, and it would be, you know, maybe we have one of the, the Moss Adams partner or, or senior manager, Kimmy, and if necessary, you know, James or Kim want to participate, but I mean, real short, I mean, they're not going to give us too much time, but just right. present them and Taft, you'd have to be there and, yeah. and just present it to them and mm-hmm. ask them if they have any questions or their staff has any questions. Uh, you know, yeah. I, 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 I mean, I know we, I know we monitor, I can't remember which committee of the board, you know, kind of looks at us, but I think getting to the full board and showing our audit, we've never done it before. Is something that they they might be bored, but we made the effort. We all think. I I, I, I think that's a great idea. And uh, back to Brian and John and that timeline. Just to, as a heads up, and then Kim, we're we're planning on a September board retreat. This looks like that would be just a little bit before completion, right? Based on that timeline. Okay, got Correct. it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I just wanted to add that, you know, considering the history between Alameda Health System and the county and these recoupments from these supplementals from years ago and, you know, the grand jury report and all of these, uh, these uh, uh, I'm going to call them mischaracterization of how we present our financials, I think it might be really good to have um moss adams um present the audit and the statement on we are cruel basis and we have done our best to estimate any future liability um would be a really good thing yes ma'am thank you i agree yeah i would i would agree too because i my understanding is that this has not been done before and so it would be a great opportunity Awesome. Great. Yep. We'd be happy to do that. We'll work with the management team to uh, be prepared for that. Well, we'll see how happy you are after you. No, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, it, it, it would be a, a great pleasure, as you know, to have be in front of the uh, board of supervisors. <laughs> well, we shall see. <laughs> All right. You know, we did have a couple of other slides, but I think in the interest of time, we can, uh, you know, skip through them. You've got them in your slide deck. Um, there is a slide on, uh, you know, COVID resources. We have been working with management to keep them updated to the ever-changing landscape of pr- provider relief funds and, uh, you know, so submitting FEMA applications and things like that. Um, we have uh, currently scheduled bi-weekly phone calls to make sure that, you know, if they've got questions that we're there to support those questions and to help them through uh, this process that, uh, you know, will be, uh, you know, FEMA applications and provider relief reporting. So there's a slide on that one. And then there's four slides on accounting standards updates. Really the only uh, slide that I would say that, you know, we need to focus on this year is the the one related to GASB 84, the fiduciary activities. Um, it relates to those, um, you know, defined benefit and pension plans, EOPEP plans, and then the uh, defined contribution plans and some reporting changes that, um, uh, will be reflected in this year's financial statements. Um, not an impact to the accounting that the health system is doing, but uh, a, a change in financial reporting is what we're expecting um, when we dig into 
um, those statements. Those are followed by a couple of other uh, new standards. One has to do with leases. Um, we can talk about those uh, during the, the final presentation. I can put those on. We can talk about them then so that you've got an idea of what's coming up for next year, as well as uh, some interest costs for construction, as well as conduit debt obligations. So I just thought I would highlight those, but not you know go into depth with them at this point, given the, the time we have left. Thank you. Okay, and then you're not you're not going to crow about Moss Adams. Well, you know uh, those those uh, slides are are there as an opportunity to uh, to, to share who we are, but uh, certainly not going to uh, take the the committee's time to go through them in, in detail. But they are there for your own edification. Well, I, 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 go ahead, give us three seconds. I mean, I, I, <laughs> you put them in there for a reason. I, I don't want you to go back to your, to your. BD department say, well, we didn't, we didn't talk about this. Let's talk You're about asking it. for shameless self-promotion. We're all yeah, I, I don't mind shameless self-promotion. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, we've talked about the relationship uh, we have, but it's, you know, again, it's important for the, the committee to understand uh, who the firm that they're working with. Uh, you know, I think the highlight uh, here is that, uh, you know, we're uh, a, um, you know, one of the 15 largest firms uh, in the country, but the only one in that group that's uh, headquartered and uh, our entire footprints in the Western United States. Uh, so we, uh, uh, along the West Coast, our, our critical mass, we're the fifth largest firm uh, in, in the country. So we have uh, in that footprint. So we have, you know, significant resources to bring to bear. Uh, and we really focus from an industry group perspective. Uh, and so all of the members on your team uh, that will be working with your management team are um, specializing in the healthcare field and primarily the health system uh, field. So it gives us an opportunity uh, to compare and contrast uh, what Alameda Health System is doing uh, with other health systems. That helps in audit quality, uh, but we also think it helps in, in uh, you know, advising and operations, uh, et cetera. So we think we've got a, a great team assembled uh, to help you uh, in this engagement in what is a, a very critical time uh, for all of healthcare. Um, so uh, we really appreciate uh, the relationship we have and, and hope that uh, the health system uh, does as well because we try and bring a lot of value to that. Well, thank you very much, Brian. Thank you very much, Sean, and your entire team at Moss Adams. And, um, so thank you very much for your time. Appreciate you being here tonight. We look thank forward you. to uh, communicating with you throughout the engagement. Great. Thank Take you. care. All right. Uh, okay. Let's move on to item C. That's a discussion of the internal audit compliance reporting or summary. And uh, Kimmy, uh, you're on, you're on the podium. Okay. Let me just bring up the presentation. Let me just go here. Oh, no. <laughs> One second. I don't 
let me try to bring it up again. Okay. So, <clears throat> so um, I'm going to go over um, our reporting summary, and these are just the top areas that are I want to point out. And of course, one is the 340B update, the other is the payroll review, and then the privacy and security, plus about the um, uh, external audit contract, the status for that. And then generally about the um, benchmarking report and then about the compliance program, since this is the first time that this new um, committee is um, part of this audit and uh, compliance committee. So to start off, um, I wanted to um, talk about the um, Department of Healthcare Services and that they sent us a, a demand uh, letter to do a self-audit of our 340B claims. And so I, I believe, you know, uh, last time Rick and I gave um, a quick summary of this, but essentially um, we were um, told to do a self-audit for this period, which was uh, December of 2016 to December of two, 2019, and to review that we applied the UD modifier uh, correctly, that we did not exceed the actual acquisition clause, and if we did about the any overpayments. So we completed um, this audit and we submitted this, um, all the documents to DHCS on the June 2nd. And um, trying to go to the next page. Okay, so I just wanted to just talk about the summary results and that um, we work with the outside legal counsel uh, regarding our submission. And so there was um, approximately 46,000 claims that were part of this um, audit. And that um, this is an estimate as to the, um, that in the um, actual acquisition costs we exceeded that amount, which came up to 1.2 million. But I want to just make a point that we have to wait for the response from DHCS on the next steps. And I just want to go over a little bit more about this um, self-audit and that there are two parts to this audit. One is the retail outpatient um, audit. And so overall, we met the requirements for that and, um, and that we applied the modifier correctly, that we um, build according to the AAC. However, um, Medi-Cal actually reimbursed us more than the um, actual acquisition costs, which came up to um, almost 14,000. Now the other part of that uh, retail outpatient um, audit is that there is a professional um, 
dispensing fee. And that is where we um, consist consistently uh, underbuilt um, for. And that Medi-Cal, actually, we should have received um, $10.05, but we billed them at $7.25. So the difference is $2.80. So if you take for this whole period, the um, that amount, we were underpaid. And that came to approximately a little bit over 93,000. <clears> so that's part of in the our um, letter the, of our submission. Now, the other part, which is the bigger audit, is has to do with the physician administrative drugs. Okay, and so in that part of the audit, yes, we had some um, problems and that we did not apply the UD modifier uh, consistently correct uh, or correctly all the time. And that in some cases we um, exceeded the um, actual acquisition cost. And I, I want to point out, though, the reason why we did not bill correctly all the time is because 340B billing is not just straightforward. Um, for example, um, Medi-Cal fee-for-service requires not just the UD modifier, but you have to bill at the actual acquisition cost. However, Medi-Cal managed care does not have the same rule. We do not have to uh, bill at that um, actual acquisition cost. And the same rule goes for county um, health plans. So there was some programming logic that was not correct based on the payer rules for um, the 340B program. So um, what complicates this uh, submission is that we did a prior audit. And the prior audit, um, a chunk of it, it falls into this time period. And that prior audit was from March of 2017 to the end of June of 2019. And so uh, we, when we found that um, there were some errors in the billing, we fixed it and we rebuilt uh, Medi-Cal. But there's a time limit um, for billing. And so there were cases where we could not bill. So we did notify uh, DHCS and so we came to an agreement, meaning AHS and DHS, um, uh, we uh, agreed that we, for those affected manufacturers, we would refund them, make them whole, um, to the price of the 340B discount we received. So that amount came to about $2.1 million. But we sent um, letters to all of those manufacturers, and we settled with half of those manufacturers. And the other manufacturers did not respond to our letters. And so um, that's part of what makes this amount uh, contingent on our discussion 
uh, with DHCS on what the next steps are. So the, um, the other part I want to talk about is that because we found this problem, we put um, a bill hold on the um, 340B claims. And so um, compliance, we worked with revenue cycle on the, um, the different um, kind of logic that needs to happen so we can bill correctly to all these different um, uh, health plans. And so we did test it out. We, com we um, confirmed it with revenue cycle and make sure that everything was correct. And so they, um, we had about 20 million that was on hold until we can make sure that the billing uh, was correct on every one of these scenarios. And then we billed it and we actually got paid. So I wanna just go to the next slide and that we um, we did bill it out and we re we got paid. So this part is complete on on um, all bills were um, were uh, billed and uh, we got paid as of the end of May of this year. So what we're doing in our audit um, action plan is that we are going to do quarterly reviews of 340B going forward. And then we're also going to um, do a, um, a 340B Medicare mo uh, modifier review because there's a different modifier that's used uh, for um, by Medicare. And so that is part of our action plan. Um, and just one more slide. Um, this is just to give you an example of that, you know, we had approximately 20 million and then we have the candidate um, uh, for final bill, which is at 9.7 that we had on hold. And so in May, we were able to bill all of this. And so of course it's, you know, zero. Do is, is there any questions to this? I have one question, Akimi. Yes. Mm -hmm. The one point two million is that how much do we have on our books as a liability? I'm, I'm assuming that is the liability to the first. That's yeah. That's um, that's a settlement with the affected manufacturers, and um, so you know we were able to settle half of that. So we still have, um, I have to look at the, our summary and I can share that with you later. later. But half of the um, manufacturers have not responded. So we still have that where if they were to respond a year from now, there is a, um, a amount that's been set aside. And I double checked with um, Ann Metzner that if they were to come back and ask for the monies, that um, we would take it out of that cost center. And I can share that uh, what is still left. Right, and I know from you know living this before that oftentimes the manufacturers don't want to claim it unless it's a big dollar amount because they have to refile all of their, um, their uh, statements 
Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a it's a huge uh, uh, problem unless it's worth it. So I guess that doesn't surprise me. And I think what we talked about is over a three year per period taking that amount into income. Uh, so I think maybe that would be appropriate to make sure that the audit committee is comfortable with that. Akimi, can you, I apologize again, I'm feeling slow today. Um, can you just summarize what the regulatory impact is on us and then what the financial impact is on us as of right now? Well, the regulatory is that we, um, we were not following the rules of okay. the 340B, um, but that's why we worked with outside counsel on how to craft that submission because there's so many different parts to it. And that, um, you know, the retail pharmacy essentially was correct. And we should have received part of the money. And so the, um, that's part of the argument. And then the physician administrative drugs, yes, we corrected that. So we made that very clear that we've um, corrected all of those um, errors and that we would, that our action plan is to do ongoing audits and to refund if there were any errors going forward. So that is what we um, submitted to DHCS. And we've already um, did the prior review which with um, Persia. So we are, what I wanna say, in compliance and yeah. that we did what we could and um and that we spent many months doing audits to ensure that when we have audited all of our 340b claims and that uh, we've done the correction we have done this the settlements with the manufacturers um who responded to us um based on our agreement with the dhcs <clears throat> And, um, and that we will um, do continual um, audits. So, you know, I, I also want to give kudos to our manager of revenue cycle compliance, that's Ann Lee, because she did nothing but audit all of these, um, uh, these claims to um, come up with um, a summary for this review and to ensure that um, DHS would be, um, I wouldn't say satisfied, but would agree with our findings and what our, um, what our comments are regarding the part that we already um, build and we agree to and, and then what the next steps. And we ask them to, um, to have a discussion with us on any parts that they did not understand because this, what we submitted was very large um, data of, of everything that we have done. So um, compliance wise, we um, did the mitigation on what we needed to do and that going forward, we have corrected the billings and so our part from compliance is to ensure that we are still um, compliantly billing according to the 340B. 
on a go forward basis. Yes. So, uh, so again, uh, this is out of my ignorance. Are there any uh, compliance penalties for past behavior if we've shown effects to to uh, to identify the problem and now uh, go moving forward? I guess I'm trying to see what is our compliance and regulatory exposure behind beyond what what we've there, done. Well, there really isn't because we okay. already um, came to agreement about how we would um, mitigate that, okay, and that great. was to notify all those um, affected manufacturers. Okay. And there's there's a couple other comments. One, Epic is helping us with this, obviously. We, we figured out how to set it up, so um, ongoing audits are important, but we should not have the problems we had in the legacy systems. Right. Also, a 340B compliance committee that I think Akima reports to on how we're doing. And then the third comment I want to make is that the liability is an estimate because we really do not know what the vendor uh, costs were. So that's the interesting thing about this whole process is that, you know, we don't know. We can only just estimate on what that liability is. We need them to partner with us to figure it out. And if they respond, we don't know. So it's very, very complicated. Um, it, it, it is. Mm -hmm. And Hersha, who um, is kind of the regulatory for the 340B, requires that we have an oversight committee for the 340B. And so that is actually run through pharmacy, but compliance um, plays a big part of that. So we will be reporting through that committee um, our you know, um, essentially these results plus our ongoing um, audits that we will be um, conducting. Chair Bouquet, this is Ahmad, just uh, uh, to put it sort of briefly here. Uh, right now it's a financial negotiation. Yes, sir. Um, we don't see you know, any sort of penalties. Uh, Wonderful. On the horizon right now. Um, and in that amount that it can be there showed the 1.2 that's still under negotiation so um that's that's pretty much the extent of it there so council again uh, this is from ignorance so our exposures don't seem to be uh legal or compliance for going forward it seems to be financial and the outside uh, uh financial exposure would be that 1.2 or is it more um so or, or or we can't say at this point. So so it so the question is whether or not the prior audit, whether or not those uh, companies are going to the ones that haven't called us and engaged in you know uh, any conversation about getting that money back, right? So if they get that, if, if we start paying those, but it, but as Kim said and Kim, you may have alluded to, um, you know what we know is that um, there it's. It's highly likely that 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 those companies are not going to come back in the amount that we've already paid that that amount is probably going to be the extent of it so so then to answer your question this 1.2 million may be the max okay that, great thank you uh, but we are in negotiation with them uh regarding even this 1.2 million okay i i guess my question i'm just looking for exposures for the organization so it sounds like we don't have any further compliance, legal or regulatory exposures, given the, the, the work plan you've identified. And and at, on the financial front, it looks like our, our outmost exposure is 1.2. So 
So worst case scenario is we have to potentially kick out 1.2. Best case scenario is it's a push and we have a better system going forward. Does that seem accurate? The, the best case scenario, um, you know, uh, to, to sort of, you know, more real, uh, the realistic case scenario, we're, yeah. probably, we're gonna probably end up paying something for okay. this new audit. Okay. Um, but- uh, Something less than 1.2. I think so. Maybe okay. around, you know, slightly less than a million. Okay. Uh, but 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 again, you know, I, I we're in the middle of negotiations, so okay. uh, we'll come back to you all once we uh, get uh, some sort of firm number. Good counsel. Do your best. <laughs> oh, absolutely, we will be. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm. Okay. So this next one is about the payroll uh, review that was done. And it was to verify the accuracy in, of the payroll process. And so the audit period was from June, August, and October of 2020. And um, I really want to focus on <clears throat> regarding the PTO cell activity, because that's where the our top risk area was. And if you don't know what the PT, um, PTO cell activity, what that means is um, we do have a 50% cap on how much um, an employee can request in, the, uh, in monies. So for example, if the person just didn't take um, vacation and accumulated 400 hours and um, we can only or they can only request uh, like 200 of that hours and monies. And so in this um, review, we've identified that there was over 150 employees that were able to sell more than the 50% cap. And so that amount totaled to over 650,000 and the amounts for the fiscal year 2020. And when we dig into what was the um, cause of that, part of it was due to the pandemic. And so employees needed to have money. And, um, and they also put in um, more than one request. And so it also confused the payroll staff. Um, and also this is a manual process. So they did not have a really good tracking about um, where they were going over that the cap and um, to be able to verify this. And so the uh, we did um, work with the payroll management and they are um, going to work on an improved process to ensure that there is better tracking and we're not going over that 50% uh, cap. And so second, so- um, Actually, Kamen, do you mind going back to that? Sure. And then I'm probably gonna shut up or I'm gonna try to shut up. So what I'm understanding on that last slide, we had a system in place whereas uh, people were not allowed to sell over 50% of the cap, but 150 employees were able to do it. 
accounting for 11,000 hours mm-hmm. at, at a total cost of $650,000. Yeah. Yes. And our, and our plan is to fix that process. But what about the people who were paid that beyond, which, which actually went beyond, I hope, which were clear guidance and rules? Yes. Yeah, so or is that a different issue for a different committee? Yeah, that is a different issue in that that's already been, um, what's it, sell to the employees. So we need to ensure that going forward that um, we have an adequate tracking to verify one eligibility and that we do not go over that cap. Mm-hmm. And I get so- that. But if, yeah, I, I get that. But if, if the bank makes a processing error to me and they give me an extra $10,000, I don't get to keep the $10,000. <laughs> yeah, I, that's something that I have to ask um, payroll management because that's that wasn't our recommendation was not to say that the employees have to give that back. Um, that is actually theirs. And so um, that's uh, a benefit that um, employee has. So they really don't have to give that money back. We have a policy and there is a guideline that um, we generally should have a, um, a cap for that amount because the person has, gets sick, they need to have PTO hours. Um, before they can get into the other part of the uh, sick leave. And so we have to have those guide our policies in place for that. And so that is a, a general rule. And that's why the payroll management are going to um, put it in a better um, kind of adequate tracking for this. Because currently they've been using um, kind of a, a manual process, the Excel. And so they're going to put in a different um, process for this. So they were going to come up with a solution by July 15th. So are you saying the policy wasn't in place before it had? So no, the this... policy has been in place. And okay. so they have not been following the policy. And that um, to ensure that they do not go over that cap. So, Akimi, could the recommendation be that we change the way we do this? Because there is an accrual, and if there was a minimum amount of hours that had to be in that accrual bank, then it could eat. I don't want to get into this on this call. Yeah, exactly. I think the issue is because it's 50%, it's arbitrary. So maybe we need to relook at the policy. Yeah, so like I said, the um, payroll management is going to come um, back to us with what that um, improved tracking would be to prevent this from occurring. And so I, I right now do not know what that will be, but they are to have it completed um, with that um, improved mechanism by July 15th. And so they understand that they have to um, ensure until they have this in place that um, there is no, um, people are not going over the cap. And um, and so the, um, like I said, part of this is that they've gotten um, 
lot of requests during the pandemic time. And so it's very different now because people are not requesting as many as, as before because of um, the pandemic, people needed that money. And so they were looking at how to um, kind of get more of the salary to help them. I mean, Kimmy, I get that. And I obviously sympathize. So I'm just, I'm just looking at the process. And this is, from one perspective, this is a $650,000 lesson for this organization. And that's yes, a, it is. That's a very expensive lesson. And uh, um, so. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a timing difference. Because if they left the organization, we would have to pay Yeah, it. we have to pay them. Mm-hmm. So it is, a, it is a timing issue. But I really do believe that the way that we wrote the policy is it to be very difficult to manage. So, you know, I think uh, it sounds like payroll is going to come forth with a recommendation. So uh, hopefully we can we can get this fixed because the accrual is in Kronos. So if you had a different set of rules, it would be obvious if folks were going over the balance they needed to keep. It's because we do 50% of something that's not in there. It makes it very difficult. And if you're getting a lot of... Um, requests, which is what Akimi is saying, then I could see how, you know, if you've got several payroll people and two people are doing two different requests in the same pay, pay period, you know, I mean, <laughs> I can see how it could be very difficult. And of course, payroll is always in a rush to try to get payroll done. So um, anyway, I'm sure that we can come up with a better solution. Uh, yes. And so, um, that was the biggest risk here, but there were two other recommendations that we gave, and one has to do with the time, uh, proving the timesheets. And so that's the number one that's listed here. And essentially, in the review, we found that um, management, management was not always approving the timesheets. And we also had managers um, who were approving their own timesheets. So there was not um, a leader above them that was um, approving it. And so um, payroll management um, worked with uh, HRIS to put improved mechanisms in Kronos. So there is a notification to um, the manager that the timesheet needs to be approved. Now, the other um, part is that if the manager uh, still does not respond, then the payroll staff will contact the managers that the timesheet needs to be approved. And, you know, understand we must, um, under law, pay the employees for the time that they work, regardless of that there was no approval. And so this is what uh, management, uh, payroll management has done. And they started this on uh, May 31st. So um, we will check in to see how that is working. So is the employee now required to sign their time card first and then it goes to the manager? Yeah, that's what's supposed to happen that the um, employees should be um, approving their timesheets and then um, the manager should be 
uh, sign off as an approval. So then we don't have employees um, saying, oh, you know, uh, complaining about how their uh, time was um, accounted for. I agree. I think it's very, very important. But I think uh, it, when I first got here a year ago, we didn't have enough licenses to do it. And then when my leaders left, they the folks came under me and my staff had said they'd never signed their time card. So, I mean, I understand that you audited it, but I'm not sure that we had a process in place to be audited. But and, we need to fix this. I think it's very important. Yeah, and that's something that we can follow up with payroll management because... I don't think everybody is doing that, but I, um, you know, I I approve mine, and then you know my boss um, does the final approval of my timesheet. So the um, last one here is about the MOUs, the Memorandum of Understanding Agreement. So when we review um, those MOUs, we saw that in some cases, the final sign-off was not um, done. And that was either by AHS leadership or by the union leaders. And so we did um, uh, work to make sure that all of those MOUs are finaled, and they're, meaning that they're signed off. So that has been completed as of the end of March. Any questions? So um, I wanted to talk about information security. And I think everybody knows that we have um, Ijaz Ali, who's our chief information security officer. And so he has started working on his work plan, which has 12 areas. And so the two top areas um, which are priority for him is the access termination of non-IHS employees. And so his action plan is um, to review the user's network access <clears throat> from external um, sources and then to verify the appropriate access with the hiring managers, <clears throat> which includes the termination dates and then to conduct ongoing audits um, to identify if there's any possible violations um, to compliance with security. Um, and then the other risk area is there are internal network visibility. And so he um, wants to strengthen our internal network, which uh, integrates with our current endpoint uh, detection uh, tool. And so uh, if by putting these extra tools, we can uh, quickly respond to any security uh, incident. So there is um, the first one has to do with um, our security incident and event management, and that there will be kind of, it provides a baseline of the activity to our network and it provides alerts when there's any kind of abnormality to our security that we can investigate. The other tool uh, is the network detection and response tool. 
And so that monitors the traffic communication and to identify um, about PHI or sensitive information that would violate uh, HIPAA or patient safety. And the others is to um, to uh, monitor any malicious or suspicious behavior uh, in the detection of the cyber uh, cyber um, threats. Is there any questions about the information security review? Yeah, I do. Okay, um, maybe this is more for Ahmad than than you, but uh, for any claims, do we carry insurance? Actually, we do carry insurance um, for cyber uh, threats. Tax. Um, yeah. So we do have insurance. So I'm going to suggest something else here that you know maybe this is a very short report, but um, uh, for some future is so. Give us an idea of the volume of threats that we've experienced and our responses. And uh, I would imagine if we've had some ransomware attacks and we, whether SS or insurance company decided to pay. So I know we want to keep those confidential because that's smart, but maybe, maybe that's a closed session. But I, I'd like to know, you know if what's been our experience. Does anybody attack this? I, oh, I, I know the answer to that is yes. The question is, what's been our responses and how effective have we been? Um, sure. So I will follow up with um, EJAWS on that to um, provide that information about the volume of threats and the type. You know, okay. tr Trustee Splendorio, so, you know, over the last few years, um, we've actually haven't had as many as you would think we would. I mean, uh, maybe a couple, I mean, we, we're talking about large scale sort of attacks, mm -hmm. a couple. Um, since I remember, I mean, I've been here for six and a half, seven years now. Uh, in the last few years, two, three, four years, I mean, we haven't had too many large scale. We've had a few that have come that have uh, you know impacted uh, entire industries, right? And you probably read uh, about them on the news. We hear them. Um, the CIO, myself, Akemi's team, we all get together and we try to you know figure out how we can you know protect ourselves. Uh, we've had a number of those, but none that, you know, uh, that resulted in any actual harm. Um, but but that's not to say that, you know, there's not a lot of uh, room that, that we have to to get better. And from speaking with our uh, CISO, Chief Information Security Officer, he thinks we have, we have uh, a lot of things that we need to get better on. Yeah, you know, you understand, you know, a privacy breach. We, we obviously have a lot of confidential information and like a lot of businesses do, but you know, especially us. Yeah. 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 Okay. And especially, you know, since there's a lot more, um, cyber threats, which is becoming more of a, uh, potential issues, which is why this, um, protecting our internal network, um, is important. And so this is a risk area that our, uh, Chief Information Security Officer um, wants to protect um, our network. Is there any other questions? Okay. So I want to kind of focus a little bit on our privacy risk areas because. Um, 
privacy is our second um, kind of uh, reported issues that come through our hotline. Our, the number one is actually HR uh, cases, but we work with HR on a, on a record basis to follow up on those, um, those allegations that come through. But this is just to give you a snapshot of for years uh, period, the um, what types of incidents come through. And, and I'm gonna go over these, the um, top four ones. So in that, um, the top four um, is misdirected PHI. Um, there's 38 cases and misdirected can be um, like uh, maybe the after, after visit summary. And let's say they somebody printed a couple of them and you have two patients and their names are similar and you, you gave the wrong one to the wrong patients. And so um, we have those that uh, cases where we have to investigate and um, to determine whether this is an actual violation or not. And then we have encrypted emails. Now we, even though this says 31 cases, we have um, a mechanism called ZIX and a ZIX. And so it actually um, notifies compliance. So it doesn't send out that email. It actually drops into our compliance inbox. And so um, we have our senior investigator who sends um, a notification to the person who um, did not um, use the right encryption for um, when they were going to send this email. And so it's a reminder, kind of education for the person as to how to ensure that these emails that might have um, privacy um, in the email is encrypted. And it's putting in the, the header is secure. Um, but then also in the header, you can't put patient's name in there because it cannot encrypt the title area, but it will encrypt the uh, what's in the email itself. And then the other 16 cases are inappropriate disclosure. And that could be like um, someone uh, putting a message on a phone and then saying, you know, that I'm calling from this doctor's office and I'm calling about this type of results. And that could be an inappropriate disclosure. So we had 16 of those cases. And then of course, the other one is um, snooping. So we had 15 of those. So the, um, when we have those, one, we investigate to um, confirm whether it's a true violation. And we collaborate though with the department leaders to mitigate uh, risks um, about the patient's PHI. And a lot of that is education. So we require that there's an education, everybody signs it. So we have a record that um, there was targeted education. Now, if we have to report privacy incidents to um, regulatory agencies, um, because we confirm it is a true violation um, to CDPH, uh, we have 15 days to report it. And um, so we are fined 
for late reporting, um, $100, I believe it is, per day. Um, and then annually for all the uh, cases we would have um, confirmed violations, we have to report that to the Office of um, Civil Rights. And then, of course, like it says, um, we do focus training. And we also include that in um, our monthly newsletter. So as we get these type of privacy um, kind of um, concerns that come up, we will put um, kind of uh, reminders in our um, newsletter just to let everybody know to please um, be careful about like um, don't have PHI um, when you uh, leave your monitor um, open and make sure you control alt delete to lock your uh, your monitor and even though you're going to step away for one minute and that type of thing. Do you have questions about our privacy risk area? Because I wanted to talk about our privacy compliance and that our average of issues that come in from 2018 to current has been about 46%. And then our third quarter, our actually our privacy cases went up to about 67%. And so, you know, we have one person who, um, Bonnie uh, Leong, who's our director of um, privacy and regulatory uh, compliance. And so she, you know, works um, on any privacy and confidential information. And she works a lot with legal since there's a lot of contracts that have um, privacy areas. So she has to review it for protection of patient data as well as um, business associate agreements. And, but there is the compliance um, staff including me, that we um, assist her with investigations, we do um, audits, and we also provide education. And I wanted to just um, let everybody know that <clears throat> um, in 2019, the NAVIX Global Report indicated through survey, um, through different organizations, what their top three concerns were. And so the number one was data privacy protection. Number two is uh, cybersecurity. And number three was protection of confidential information. And so I just wanted to put this out there because privacy is, um, I want to say, a top risk area for our organization, especially since we um, manage a lot of patient information. Is there any questions? Okay. So um, this committee asked to know the status of the contract that we have with our external audit, and this is Moss Adams. So they were, you know, told you that they do audits of, of our financial statements. And so they do this um, on an annual basis, you know, and the, our contract period is from February of 2020 to the end of November of 2022. And the annual amount 
of this, um, our contract is 190,000 and 100. Does anybody have questions? Okay. Now, this is um, a benchmark report. Um, we uh, compared other organizations in the Bay Area about their compliance programs. And so I really want to, um, you know, um, thank, you know, um, our team because they really worked on helping to contact these um, organizations. And this gives you a snapshot um, as a number type of facilities that are managed and uh, also the number of employees, um, including providers, and the number of hospital beds, and the number of um, staff they have in their annual budget. So this is comparing AHS, and we were able to um, receive feedback from El Camino Health, Santa Clara County Health System, uh, San Joaquin uh, General Hospital, and San Francisco General. And so, you notice something here that, you know, when we talk to Santa Clara County, if they have 19 compliance staff, but they also manage or oversee um, their health plans and they also um, work with the public health department. So that's why they have um, a bigger number of compliance persons. Oops. You know, I apologize, my... Um, Cisco Connect just tie me out. <laughs> so I'm sorry if you didn't hear me. Um, Akimi, hey, yeah. you, you've grouped people, compliance, audit, um, IRB, I guess. I, I get that that can be separate. I've seen it separate in other places. Others group it all together. Does that mean that they multitask and we don't multitask? Yes. So let me show this next slide. So when we talk to um, these groups, their compliance staff work on both um, privacy and compliance matters. Um, and there is only one other organization that has an IRB as part of their compliance department. Now, the difference is that their internal audit staff is a separate unit within the organizations because our internal audit staff are CPAs. And so it's a little bit different because in the other organizations, they do have, um, they do coding and documentation audits. And they're either by um, the certified coders who um, work with revenue cycle and providers, or they use an outside service as needed. So it, depending on the organization, they um, some of them do have certified coders, so they do um, kind of periodic, small, um, what's it, audits or reviews. And right now in our compliance program, I'm the only one that is a certified coder. Um, but um, one of our other um, managers is going to sit for the exam, and so she's studying for it. And so we both can um, do some um, kind of reviews of the documentation um, to see whether the coding supports it. But like you were, um, Kim um, 
were indicating we are um, engaging an outside um, service vendor who's going to start um, uh, doing um, professional fee reviews of our um, billing providers. So I'm hoping to have that um, agreement in place so they can start um, sometime in July. That would be great. I'm really, really happy to hear that. I, you know, I know I've been pushing for that for a while. Um, and I'm assuming you must have put it in your budget because I was going to use yes. cater from last yes, so, to get it Yes, done. it's in my budget. Um, so I budgeted for it already. And, um, and being that this vendor we already used, it makes it a little bit more easy in that we um, put an amendment together. And um, being that we use them for the facility side, um, they have access to Epic, so it makes it a little more easy that they can um, start quicker. And their expertise is actually in professional fee um, uh, reviews. So um, they are looking forward to this engagement. Okay, thank you. Are we at the conclusion of this? No, actually, I just wanted yeah, there's a little bit more. Oh, there you go. Yep. Okay. And so I just want to talk about best practices for a compliance program. So yeah, this came from the U.S. Sensing Guidelines, and they indicate that you can get cooperation credit, and that's hopefully we will ever we're not we will never be under investigation. Hopefully, by the Office of Inspector General or the Department of Justice. But they indicate that an organization, if they implement an effective compliance program, that you can get some um, cooperation credit. And it could be something as that, okay, our crime might, might not be as large if, if we um, can prove that we do have an effective compliance program. And they also indicate that organizations do periodic assessments of their program. And so that can be anywhere from three to five um, years. And our last one was done in May of 2017. So, you know, the rating that they gave us was below standard. And they said that while we had qualified um, uh, staff, the problem is that we were not able to address some areas of compliance risk. And so that's where we... Um, you know, we have to prioritize our resources to ensure that we are, um, you know, um, using resources where there's a high risk compared to the low risk. We're not going to do that at this time. And so just to FYI, um, that's where we are right now. And so um, just for the compliance program itself, and this is what our current structure is. And so um, we do have our internal audit, um, which is one person. And there's, we have an auditor who's fairly new reporting to that, um, that manager. Then we have a manager for revenue cycle compliance um, who works a lot with revenue cycle. And um, I do as well. 
And then we have the Director of Privacy and Regulatory Compliance and our Senior Compliance Investigator reports to her since he works a lot on privacy cases. Um, and then I have the research specialist who reports to me since we have oversight over our um, IRB. Is there any questions to that? Nope. Can, we, can you, uh, mm -hmm. uh, sorry, uh, apologies, Chair. May I ask a question? <laughs> Um, Akimi, remind me how this this governance structure. Who roll, who who does VP your your? How does this position? Where does that position roll up to? So the VP of Internal Audit and Compliance rolls um, reports to this committee. Okay. Now, administratively, re, um, that person reports to James Jackson, the CEO. Okay. So right now, I'm the interim person. Uh, and so that's why I'm presenting and um, any areas that you want to see, um, you would let me know. And I would ensure that this committee um, is formed on, of those areas. Okay. So direct line to CEO from the VP internal audit administratively. Yeah, yes. Okay. And then I report to this committee. And so this the VP um, evaluation would be by this committee. Okay. All right. I, I only want to can we interrupt you. Was that, you know we just have rolled into in case anybody's keeping score. We're on item D of the agenda. I'm glad you rolled right into it. Thank you. Let's finish this up. Yep. Okay. Because so we only have one last one, and I can actually um, talk about this a little bit more next time. But I just wanted the new members to understand. What are the uh, components of a compliance program? Because this is what the U.S. Assessing Guidelines indicates. And so right now I am the Chief Compliance Officer and we need to have a compliance committee, which is this committee. And then we need to have written policies and have a standard of conduct. We do have a code of conduct. We also need to provide education and training. And that part of it is education and training based on our policies and our uh, our code of conduct. And then we have to have a line of communication. So we do have a mechanism for people to communicate with compliance if they have any concerns or ideas, anything that they want to talk about. Then we have to have internal monitoring and auditing. And so this part of this is to monitor the policies we have which in, um, within AHS. And then we have to have disciplinary guidelines to ensure that people are following our guidelines um, through the auditing that we do. And then we have to respond promptly to um, offenses and implement corrective actions. So if a person brings up concern, we have to investigate it promptly and then implement any corrective actions if we confirm that this is a true um, offense. So any questions on that? So Akimi, I have a question. Mm -hmm. So I don't see evaluation of risk on here. And I would think that there's a process between you and the compliance committee to evaluate risk and prioritize the audits for the year. Yes, that, that's conducting internal monitoring and auditing. So in there, we do an annual risk assessment. And actually, we do. I will bring that next time. But um, as part of the um, our work plan, we do a risk assessment, and 
So this, um, in that work plan, we identified 193 risk areas. Now there are 12 high risk areas. And what we do with that is that we validate that with the executive team. So when we did that work plan, it was, you know, with the prior executive team to go through that um, validation. And then we confirm with them um, based on resources have what should be in that work plan. And that's where we do the auditing. And do you consider the OIG? Because usually they give Yes, we do. So we also include that in our risk plan. Okay, good, thank you. Sure. Any other questions? Okay, so since we cannot um, have approval or work plan, I'm not going to bring that up. But right. if you have any questions um, regarding that uh, work plan, um, please let me know. And um, because one of the the um, projects that's not listed there is the privacy security walkthroughs that we are planning. And the reason why we did not include that is because of the pandemic. But now that our our organization is going to open up more and so more public is coming in, um, going to start coming into our facilities, it's a good time for us to plan to do these walkthroughs to ensure that we are, um, we have the security and privacy protections in place. All right, Kimmy, is there a problem if this is not approved, this uh, compliance, audit compliance plan is not approved by uh, um, until September? it should be approved by this committee. Um, however, we're going to we're going to start um, doing it. So the next time that we um, meet, uh, we will let you know what we started, and then you can uh, let us know um, the if there's any changes you want us to do. So right, we're going thanks. to include the high risk areas, but it but. There are some um, medium and low areas because we do those consistently. And so we will, um, you know, form you because like the billing and coding practices or the exclusion screening, we do that on a monthly basis. So we do include that as the work plan. Okay, thank you. Okay. So, so we're gonna skip action item E because we do not have a quorum and let's move on to action item F, which is informational and uh, written reports. Okay, I mean, I, I, this is you again. Actually, that's um, that is the details of uh, like the benchmark, the details of our um, work plan. So those are um, just additional information. If you wanted to really look at the details of of it, so one of the things that I understood by this committee is that you wanted us to only indicate whether the top risk areas are, and that if you have any questions on any of the details, you can bring them up. All right, well, I did look through that. Um, I, I don't necessarily have any, but I'll ask anybody else. I see uh, Tafnut, uh, how about any of the executive team that's on the call? Any, any questions or issues there? Uh, okay, I'm not hearing anything. So, um, Okay, should we move on to the next next item, which is uh, the item G? 
which is a calendar. I don't know if that's necessary for you, but it's maybe for the committee. Yeah, yeah that's information um, for the committee to know what's going to be on the, the agenda as we go forward. Um, well, so that's been done in the past and will we'll be reporting on um, and during each committee. All right, well, obviously for the next one, which is looks like to be September, we're gonna to have to add a couple of uh, action items, which are the uh, approval of the minutes, not only of the this meeting, but of the last meeting. Um, mm -hmm. And we'll also have to add in the uh, approval of the, of the plan. So let's mm -hmm. make sure that that gets noted. Um, and I understand there was a request by our chair, Alan Fox, to move up, uh, I believe it's September, I'm trying to read it here, 15th, to move this um, meeting to perhaps around four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, if uh, I, I, if anybody has any objections to that, please let our clerk know, and uh, she'll, I'm sure she'll schedule it for us. Okay, so I'll touch base with Rana on on yes. that. Great. And um, because all of these action items, I we do have a tracking that's listed there. So I will note that on our tracking sheet. Great. Thank you very much. Okay, Kimmy, wonderful reporting this evening. Is there anything else from you? Not from me, but does anybody have questions? I'll get to that. I'll get to that. <laughs> anybody else? Does anyone have any questions? Well, you've exhausted us. Probably a good thing. Everybody's tired. <laughs> I don't know if they're tired, you're just exhausted. No, I mean, I'm just kidding. In a good way. In a good way, of course. You're thorough and complete. Well, you know, you can always ask me um, anytime. So if there's something that you, um, anybody on this, um, you know, um, today's meeting, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me. Okay. Hey, uh, uh, Trustee Splendorio. So, yeah. uh, we'll sort of reserve the right to, you know, the, the issue of whether or not, uh, you know, this board needs to approve that plan. I think Kemi and I will talk about that. And uh, if, if we need a special session, then, uh, with, you know, we'll be reaching out to uh, Chair Bouquet on, on that. So. Okay, with one with one proviso is that the other members who did not attend this evening need to get up to speed uh, so that uh, uh, you know we can do it quickly. How's that? Yes, sir, I would agree with that. Let's not redox this or minimally. <laughs> okay, anything else before we adjourn? We're good? Thank you, well, sir. Th thank you for your patience. Thank you for your time. And we could, I mean, I was gonna take a break at two hours, but we're only two hours and 10 minutes. So, um, uh, and maybe that's, for, for, for our board chair to think, you know, sometimes it's okay to take a break, five minutes. Away. <laughs> okay. Do I know we're on first. Zoom and people can cut out when they want, but I think it's, uh, especially for the staff who's sitting there, they can, they should be able to take a break, go to the bathroom and things. So, all right, we are adjourned. Thank you very much. Have a great evening.